The scripture today is from Galatians 5 and also Philippians 3. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, that in, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you, and now even with tears, many walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Vicki. So good morning. Uh, good to see you this morning. My name is Drew Bennett, one of the pastors here at Redeemer. Um, we continue this morning in our series. We actually finished our series in the seven deadly sins. We've done this during Lent because Lent is a time for self-reflection. I hope this has been a helpful uh, series to you. Um, we, you know, we do this because Christianity really is a message about sin and about God's healing of sin in the gospel. Um, the hope of Christianity is the hope that God can come to us in the places of our deepest brokenness and begin to restore us, forgive us and, and restore us and make us new. And so we've taken this time to kind of look at some of the big, big bad boys, if you want to say, that historically the church has, has singled out as these are, the, these are the things that are the real problem. These are the core, the core issues of every other sin problem that you deal with in your life. Now, as we've done this self-reflection, I need to remind us uh, this morning that the, the fruit of self-reflection should be repentance. What we're after is repentance, not just confession. Uh, the goal is always, is always repentance, change. It's not enough. It's not enough to just identify your sins and be honest about them. That's a first step. And it's a, it's a particular problem, I think, in evangelicalism today, and, and even in our circles, believe it or not, of thinking that the goal really is to just become honest about saying, yeah, I struggle with that. Yeah, that's a problem for me. Yeah, I'm a really big sinner. You know, but, but we have to know that that's just one step. It doesn't really stop there. Martin Lloyd-Jones used to say people, you know, he would meet people all the time, and, and he would confront them about things, and they would say, yeah... Yeah, I know, that's just kind of me, that's kind of who I am. And he would say to them, well, then you need a new kind of you. And that really is, that really is the goal, that we would become different people than we are today. Christians are always confessing their sins and hating them and forsaking them. Because you're only a Christian by the grace of God. And because the grace of God includes the gift of repentance, and so you're not a Christian without repentance. You're not a Christian without a lifestyle of repentance, and so we're after repentance. And we come this morning, in the last of these seven deadly sins, to the sin of gluttony. Now, I know you've been waiting on this for a while. The good news for you this morning is if you doubted my competence in any of the other sins to talk about them with you, you have, can surely be confident that I 
has some things to say here. That should both unnerve you and uh, help you. But here's my observation with gluttony. Uh, with this particular deadly sin, I think on, one, on the one hand, we all know we're guilty, but nobody thinks it's a big deal. We all know we're guilty, but nobody thinks it's a big deal. Uh, in the Screwtape Letters, Uncle Screwtape, the senior demon, celebrates hell's achievement in deadening the human conscience to the sin of gluttony so that he says you could scarcely find a sermon preached or a conscience troubled by it in all of England. And so we're going to preach a sermon on it this morning and hopefully our consciences will be troubled because that's not a good thing. Gluttony is the sin that we freely confess and then laugh about. And that's why it's so deadly. So before you laugh me away this morning, think about this. Think about this. Just this one thing. Um, What was the sin of the first man and the first woman in Genesis 3? Eve saw food. It looked good. It looked appetizing is the word. She wanted it. She took it. She ate it. Now just think about that. When sin made its way into the world, when it's made it, when it made its entrance into the world, it didn't come as greed or anger or lying or lust. The first sin was gluttony. Isn't that, isn't that pretty just startling? And therefore, all sin is gluttonous. If you, if you wonder at that, consider that cookbooks outsell the Bible 10 to 1 in America. Gluttony, gluttony is just as deadly as any of the others. And it's particularly deadly because it's the one we all confess and then we laugh about. And so we have some work to do here this morning, Okay. Uh, from this text in Philippians chapter 3, and we're going to do what we've been doing every week. You see the outline there that I've provided for you. We're just going to walk through the same kind of steps, the same rubric as we think about this sin. We're going to first try to define what we mean by gluttony. Secondly, uh, the source, where does it come from? What's the heart engine behind it? Thirdly, how does, how does the gospel particularly um, you know, speak to uh, this sin in our lives? And as the gospel begins to take root in us and uproot the sin of gluttony, what's the change that we could experience. And so those are our four, those are our four points. Okay, so let's just begin. If you walk with me first, let's try, let's try for a definition. What is gluttony? What is gluttony? Okay. There's a couple of things I have to say here. First, gluttony is is it really does relate to food and drink. It's food and drink worship. It's I'm gonna say it a number of different ways. It's living to eat instead of eating to live, to use the well well worn phrase. It's an excessive and inordinate and destructive desire for food and drink. Too much food. Too much wine or the wrong kinds of food, you know, food that tastes good but isn't good for you, you know, whatever the case might be. So gluttony is responsible for obesity and heart disease and, of course, also alcoholism and all of these sorts of things. In a sense, in that sense, it's deadly, maybe the most deadly, at least from a physical standpoint of the seven deadly sins. We, we are, I think we have to confess to one another, we are a culture of people that are literally eating and drinking ourselves to death. Now consider Psalm 104, which is a praise to God, where the psalmist says, You, Lord, cause the grass to grow for the livestock and the plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man and bread to strengthen man's heart. And so what the psalm teaches is that bread and wine are God's gifts. They're part of God's good creation that we are meant to enjoy. Wine gladdens the heart, and that's a good thing. But too much wine is not. Bread strengthens The body, it strengthens the heart, and that's a good thing, but too much bread literally clogs the heart. 
And that's a bad thing. And so this is what we're trying to wrestle through here is this, is this obvious part of Scripture that says these things are good things that we're meant to enjoy. They're gifts of God, and we can really sin in, in not receiving them as good, as good gifts, but we can also sin against uh, him and against his gifts by, by just overindulging them as well. But here's the thing. We have, to, we have to really say this so that we can have the right parameters in which to have this discussion. You can be thin and have a problem with gluttony. Or you can be overweight, and it'd be for other reasons. So the issue is not the behavior or the outcomes. The issue is the heart, just like with all the other sins, the, the reasons and motivations for the behavior and the outcomes. And so I'm wanting to steer clear of legalism here, okay? I'm, I'm trying hard to do that. Um, but I also, this text is really going to call us to battening down the hatches of our lives, and we have to make sense of that as well. So Henry Fairley, who's a 20th century journalist and author, he wrote this, just to keep this in mind as we move on. He says, fastidiousness, I was nervous about that word, fastidiousness in eating is regarded in theology as just a much, as much a fault of gluttony as excess in it. Each of them shows an inordinate interest in eating, even though it may appear to be in not eating. Health addicts make their, their fetish of eating, make their, uh, health addicts make their own fetish of eating. They're just as obsessed with their food, even if their attention is fixed on a raw carrot or a prune. So the issue, the issue is not how much you eat. The issue with the sin is how much pleasure you take in eating or how much pleasure you take in not eating. How much food really is in the center of your imagination in your life. So we, it's an issue of food here. But here's what I'm going to do. I want to I get beyond food because I think we have to ultimately get beyond food and define gluttony a little bit more broadly. Gluttony in, in its real sense and definition is, is just self-indulgence. It is believing that... that Life and happiness can be found in the gratification of your appetites. Look at verse 19 in our text here in Philippians 3. The way the text put, puts this about the people that, that Paul is writing about is he says their God is their belly. You see that? Their God is their belly. And that's a really helpful little phrase. It describes a person who is being dominated by their physical appetites and desires. So just as with lust last week, gluttony is a sin of the body. It is overindulging the desires of the body. That's exactly how Paul describes it in Ephesians 2.3 when he says that all of us naturally, here are his words, live in the passions of our flesh and indulge in the desires of the body and of the mind. We indulge the desires of the body and the mind. That's a description of life pre-conversion, by the way, for those that Paul's writing to there. The people before they became Christians, just as they kind of lived their lives on their own before God really interrupted their lives and began to you know, come, come into them, Paul says your body has physical appetites for food, for pleasure, for sex, and so forth. And you go about obeying and indulging the body's appetites. I mean, why would you do any differently, right? I mean, the culture we live in, you know, you know this, says this is a very natural thing. And in fact, the culture says you have a moral obligation to live like that. To do, to do just what feels natural, what feels good. That's what freedom, that's liberation, that's what you should be striving for. Uh, it's repressive and it's destructive, we're told, if you don't. And Christianity comes along and just says, no. That's, that's not right. It's, it's dangerous to live that way. It's sinful. And so a Christian, post-conversion, this is after they've become a Christian. The Spirit is living inside of them. They've come to know Jesus in a personal, intimate way. Uh, here's how Paul describes that person. And it's the reason I picked up that little verse that, that Vicki read a minute ago from Galatians 5. 
He, Paul commands all of us to be crucifying the flesh with its passions and desires. To be putting those things to death. Not to be just indulging them, but to be putting them to death. And the flesh there is the body and the mind. And so it's the physical and the emotional urges that threaten to take you over. You take yourself in hand. You exercise self-control. When your stomach says, let's go to McDonald's. Right? You're driving down Cypress Gardens Boulevard, and there it is. Let's go to McDonald's. And you turn on the turn signal. And then you slam on the brakes and you pull into Publix right before you get to McDonald's and decide to get something a little healthier instead. Don't look at me like that's never happened to you. I know. <laughs> I, know what, I know what that's like. When your mind, when your mind won't stop racing with worry and accusations, you, the scripture says you take every thought captive. You talk to yourself. You don't listen to yourself. You take yourself in hand. In Christianity, you act on your appetites. You don't allow yourself to be acted on by them. You fight. You don't indulge the desires of the body and the mind. And it's what the Bible means by self-control, which is a fruit of the Spirit. It's not willpower. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's something God's Spirit and God's power does in your life. So gluttony, then, is a failure to crucify the desires of the flesh. It's failing, for whatever reason, to take every thought captive. It's allowing yourself, whether out of neglect or busyness or just, you know, exhaustion, because you've been running around doing urgent things instead of doing the important things, whatever the case might be, it's allowing yourself to develop unhealthy physical and emotional appetites that consume your life. C.S. Lewis' illustration of gluttony uh, in all sin really is, if you remember in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when Edmund is captured, uh, well, he's not actually captured, he becomes a willing victim of the White Queen's lies, and she feeds him enchanted food. Do you remember what it's called? Turkish Delight. And um, he lost all sense of himself, Lewis goes on to write there, as he's eating this food. And, he, and, and all he could think of is he's, it's the best thing he's ever tasted in his whole life. And he loves it so much that his only thought, he, it, it, the way the text says it, his only thought is trying to shovel down as much of it as he could. And the more he ate, the more he wanted to eat. And the thing about Turkish delight, says Lewis, is that anyone who had once tasted it would want more and more of it, and would even, if they were allowed, go on eating it until they killed themselves. Now, I have a similar relationship to French fries, but... <laughs> have you ever said that? I could eat myself to death. It's a perfect illustration of gluttony, an all-consuming appetite, and it's dangerous because if you find it hard, listen, listen, if you find it hard to say no to food you will soon find it hard to say no to other temptations. Self-indulgence is, like, is a rolling stone. It travels from one area of your life to another. Uh, Jonathan Bowers, who teaches at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota, it's connected to John Piper's church. He wrote a little chapter in a book I read. He, he says this. He says, self-indulgence is a chameleon. Put it near food, and it shades itself like gluttony. Put it near a pretty woman or a smooth-talking man, and it takes the colors of lust because... Because of this, we cannot afford to think that our eating habits are somehow neutral territory in the fight against sin. If we make peace with gluttony, we will make peace in one form or another with all the other vices. And so that's the definition, or at least an attempt at a definition. Their God is their belly, Paul describes these people. So secondly, what's the source then? What's the hard engine behind? What's really going on? This is not just an issue. Remember, you can be... Overweight and not have a problem here, you can be not overweight and have a problem here because it's a matter of what's going on in the heart. So what is the inner motivation and drive and desire of the heart 
uh, that really leads to this sin. And let me just give you a whole bunch of quotes here before we come to uh, look at the text again. Just listen to this as I found all of these really helpful. So just a number of different spiritual writers that I read this week that all kind of said the same thing but a little differently. So Frederick Buechner, he says this. He says, gluttony, it's, it's just, I love the way. Gluttony is the sin of looking to food to satisfy the craving of our souls for security. It's a, sen- a sense of well-being, comfort, or control. Buechner also goes on to say, he says, a glutton is one who raids the icebox for a cure for spiritual mal- malnutrition. Brian Hedges says, it's trying to fill our souls by filling our bellies. And Peter Kreeft, this is probably my favorite of the things I read this week. Peter Kreeft says, gluttony is the demand to have the world's real food for the stomach and the world's false food for the soul. And so there's an inner, what all of those things are describing is that there's an inner emptiness, an inner need, and a hunger, whatever word you want to use to capture and describe it. And this spiritual emptiness creates emotional emptiness. It, it causes us to feel emotionally that way, too. And then we stuff our bellies with physical pleasures. But what happens is, is in the process, it leaves, it leaves our hearts hollow. Now, we have a name for this. We know this. We have a name for this. We talk about emotional eating. That we, that we overeat to compensate for some emotional lack. That we try to stuff our emptiness, even if it's with chewing ravishly on a raw carrot. This is what we do. And so we come, this is really my definition then of, of what I mean by this sin as I've done the study this week. And my definition of gluttony is, is I would put it this way, that gluttony, gluttony is believing that you can live by bread alone. We read the Matthew 4 passage where Jesus says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds or comes from the Father's mouth. Jesus, in that setting, if you remember there in Matthew 4, he was physically hungry. He had been 40 days and 40 nights without food. 40 days without food, right? How long does it take you to get hangry? 40 minutes? Four hours? 40 days and 40 nights without food. And so what, what the enemy does is he comes to him and he begins to tempt him to satisfy his physical hunger with bread. He says, oh, hey, here's a stone. Turn it into a piece of, you're, you're hungry. Make bread for yourself. But see, you see, in order, to, in order to have the physical food for his body, he, he had to give away the spiritual food for his soul. That was the temptation. I mean, you don't think gluttony is a big deal. You don't think gluttony is a big deal? What's the first sin? Genesis 3, gluttony. When Satan came after Jesus, what did he arm himself with? Do you see that? He armed himself with gluttony coming after the Son of God. And Jesus' response teaches us something really important, that there is a part of you and me that bread cannot satisfy. That's what he's teaching, that there's a part of us that bread cannot satisfy, that bread is not enough. Physical pleasures can never fill you up. There's a God-sized hole in all of us, and no earthly thing is big enough to fill that hole up. Only being full of God can make you feel full. And so physical hunger is really a parable for our spiritual lives. We get hungry, and then we eat, but pretty soon we're hungry again. If you're a teenage boy, it happens a lot faster than for other people. You know, and so you have to eat again. And so the, the parable, the lesson is food is not enough. Food is only a temporary solution to the, to the hunger and the need and the emptiness that we experience. That's the lesson, that there is spiritual food that your soul needs more than your body needs bread. And the sin of gluttony is food idolatry. It's living as if bread, as if food, wine, pleasure, earthly things, sex, whatever it might be, as if those things can satisfy your physical and your spiritual hungers. 
And so what is this spiritual hunger that food can't satisfy? When the text, Paul puts it this way, if you look again, verses 19 and 20, that's really where we're, those two verses is really what, what we're meditating on this morning. He says again of these people, they're in this destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior. So the problem with the glutton is his earthly mindedness. He's looking for earthly goods and experiences that will satisfy his appetites. But not us, Paul says. We know. See, Paul says there's a difference. If you're a Christian, you've come to know that nothing on this earth can do that, that all of our havings here are just wantings because we're not home yet. This is not, excuse me, this is not our native country. And so when we're hungry, we're ultimately hungry for something that no experience, that no pleasure in this world can truly satisfy. We're hungry for heaven, for God himself. But we are so full from our endless nibbling at the table of the world The truth of our lives, every single one of us in this room, is we are spiritually starving, but we don't even know it. That we feel, we feel full, but in truth, we're starving to death. And that's really what's happening in our hearts. So our hearts are are constantly hungry. It's like, it's just like a vacuum inside that can't, that can't ever get full and we're constantly seeking something that's just going to make us feel okay. And so you learn something very important, I think, and if I could apply it this way about sin here, we learn that sin is, is habitual by nature. I said all sin is gluttonous. Sin is a routine. It's a pattern. It's a, it's a repeated behavior that becomes a, a rut that you eventually get stuck in and can't get out of. All sin is addictive. If you try to fill up your inner emptiness with things that are too small, you'll always be eating and drinking but never full. And the result will be that you'll crave more and more and more and better and better and better and stronger and stronger and stronger, and it will never be enough. Sin is addiction. And in addiction, you're out of control. You, you know the right thing to do, but you can't find the strength to do it. You with me? You know the behavior that you're involved in is destructive, but you, for whatever reason, can't stop yourself from doing it. Listen, you're not alone. Even the Apostle Paul wrote, I don't understand my own actions. Think about that. Romans 7.15, Paul says, there's things that are happening in my life. I know, I know they're wrong, but I can't stop myself from doing the wrong that I know. I don't even really understand. Something deep in my heart is, mis- I, can't, I can't figure out. I don't know why I keep, I don't know why I keep doing the things I don't want to do. I can't stop doing it. And that's what sin does to us. And so do you see, church, how we should posture ourselves to one another? We should be compassionate towards another and not just aggravated? Because sin is serious business. So what's the solution? Let's keep going. What's the solution then? Well, the ultimate solution is really not in our text. It's the reason we piece these texts together the way we did this morning. But in the John 6 passage where Jesus says, as Jonathan pointed out a minute ago, that he, he says, verse 35, I am the bread of life, and whoever comes to me shall not hunger, but whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And then in verse 51, if you eat this bread, you will live forever. Now, what does that mean? There are two Greek words in, in the Bible for life. One is bios and the other is zoe. And bios refers to physical, biological life. We get the word biological from it. Zoe refers to quality of life, eternal life. Eternal life is always not a duration of life. It's a quality of life. It's the life that's really life, or however you want to put that. Um, and so there's a difference between those two things. Now, when, when Uncle Matty was still playing baseball, we would go visit him every summer. And one time uh, when he was in Pittsburgh, we, uh, we, he arranged for us to get into the locker room, the boys and I, a little bit before the game. 
and you know it's kind of a neat thing if you're a baseball fan like 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 most of us in our family are and uh, we got to meet some of the players we even got to go out onto the onto the field and play home run derby from the outfield and I'll, I'll never forget one of my sons uh, we were playing home run derby he, he hit a home run went over the fence which is you know we're playing from like 100 feet away or whatever but it still doesn't matter you hit a home run in a major league baseball park baseball park he, he, he rounds, third base comes home, gives me a high five, says, Dad, this is the life. <laughs> now, what did he mean? Was his heart not beating a minute before? He meant, he meant that there is life, and then there's life. That there's a difference between existing and living. There's a difference between bios and zoe. And what Jesus is teaching us in that text is that there is bread for bios life, and then there's bread for zoe life, and Jesus is the bread for zoe life. John 6 is full of imagery, eating Jesus' flesh, drinking his blood, coming to him, believing in him, and all of those images are images of our union with Christ. That We talked about this last week. Intimate oneness with God and Jesus. The bread of heaven is a person. You see that? He's a person. He's not an idea. He's not a doctrine. It's a person. Eternal life is a personal relationship with him. In John 4, Jesus told his, and his disciples they were traveling from the southern part of Israel to the north, and he was exhausted. And so they stopped at a well to get a drink and a snack. And, of course, that's where the, the Samaritan woman comes out, and, and they deal with one another. And the disciples go, and they get food, and they come back, and they offer it to him because they've had this, he's, he's so hungry and physically exhausted that the Son of God ran out of energy and needed to, fill, you know, needed to be filled with, with food and rest. And so they go away, they do it, they come back, uh, and he's in the middle of this conversation, and he's like a completely different person than when they left. And they say, you know, what's going on? Don't you want something to eat? And he makes the strangest statement. He looks at them and he says, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And here's what that means. It means Jesus' personal relationship with his father was like food. It's like food in the stomach, and he wants the same kind of relationship with you. So let me ask, is your Christianity... A personal relationship. Test yourself. Is your religion personal? Marriages fall apart because they stop being personal. They become too businesslike. The two people work together. They talk when they have to. There are certain duties and responsibilities they carry out, but they're not connected meaningfully. There's no affection. There's no intimacy. And the same thing happens in religion. Is your religion personal? Do you talk to him? Does he talk to you? Can you tell me something new he's been teaching you this month? Do you live with a sense of his love for you on your heart? Do you feel affections for him? Do you spend time with him? The way you do other relationships? Is your religion, is your religion a he? Well, what makes a relationship like that possible? Well, you see it right in the middle of the text. It's the, it's the cross. Paul warns the Philippians that gluttony makes you an enemy of the cross. Do you see that verse 18? An enemy of the cross. You can become an enemy of the cross. And the cross is the opposite of gluttony. That's why he's contrasting that there. It is self-emptying. Jesus is the bread of heaven, but we're told broken and given away for the world. And his love is characterized by sacrifice and, and self-giving, unlike any other love. And so the psalmist sings, your steadfast love is better than life. In other words, knowing you, being loved by you is more satisfying than food and drink and sex and any earthly pleasure. That's what the psalmist is saying. And that's the cure for gluttony. His Dying love for you is the spiritual food that can satisfy your heart's deepest hunger. Think about what we sang this morning. The cross is enough. Think about those words. The cross is enough. We sang nothing compares to this. Nothing compares to you. 
what are we singing? We're saying there is a, we can have a relationship with him where we, real, we come to understand that he is the ultimate good that we're meant to enjoy. And when we're full of him, then we no longer are hungry for anything else, all those small little things we filled our lives with. Now, when that happens, let me finish. What's the change? What would be different? Remember, we're after repentance. So what's repentance look like? And what we've been doing every week, I hope you've, I hope you've realized this. I don't know that we've done a, very, a great job of connecting this, but we've been going and looking at one of the Beatitudes because the historically uh, Christian ethicists and theologians do that uh, to find the contrast from, for the deadly sin we're discussing in the correspondence this week is blessed are those who are persecuted. What a great Sunday. What a great Sunday to, to move to that text because brother, a brother and brothers and sisters came into a building this morning where there was a bomb strapped underneath the seat that somebody was sitting in and it exploded. And that's what Christianity has always been about. That willingness to courageously endure suffering because Jesus is better than anything else. See, gluttony is self-indulgence and self-pampering. Suffering courageously requires self-discipline and self-sacrifice. So Os Guinness writes, gluttony is a form of seeking that consumes in order to find and yet ends in losing. Courageous suffering and persecution is a form of being consumed that seems to lose yet ends in finding. And so the connection here is not just in having earthly comforts taken away from you, but what actually we're being called to do here is to actively be foregoing them on our own for, for, for Jesus' sake and for the, for the health of our own bodies and souls. And so if Jesus' love is characterized by sacrifice and self-giving, then zoe life. The life of heaven is also sac- sacrifice and self-giving because verse 20, Philippians 3.20, we are citizens of heaven. We are citizens of heaven. And that has a profound impact upon our experience of life in this world. We are citizens of heaven, which means our time on this earth should be characterized not by luxury and excess, but by what you see in Paul up at the beginning of the Philippians 3 passage. We're not interested in the details this morning, but just look at some of the things he says. I'm going to summarize it like this. He says, I'm I'm a citizen of heaven, but I'm not there yet, so I've got work to do, and I'm pressing on in that work. I'm straining forward and upward always, and the finish line is in sight the whole time. So Paul's life was full of effort and discipline And self-sacrifice and self-denial, and ours should be too. So let me offer a paradigm shift, a policy change, and two practices to help us. Now, that sounds really long. Like, there's another sermon coming? What in the world are you doing? But this is going to be really short because we're coming to an end. But a paradigm shift, a policy change, and two practices. So the first, the paradigm shift is that we, if we're going to obey the text, which is what we're meant to do, we need to begin to be developing appetites for our home country. To be developing appetites for our home country. The first mission trip I took uh, when I was a youth pastor, took some of my kids. We're going to Nicaragua this summer, so I, it's really neat to see it come full circle with my own kids. But I took a, a group of kids to a small town in Russia. I think Lauren Nedevo went on that trip. I'm, I'm not sure. But we were working in an orphanage, and so, you know, when you go on a mission trip, you got to do the really spiritual stuff. And so we ate the food uh, that the kids ate at the orphanage, and I'm going to tell you it was awful. We had borscht for every meal. Do you know what borscht is? It's like this red radish, cold radish soup. And we were all like, okay, you know, the Americans have come to town, and this is the best they could do. So I'm, I'm here to tell you, there's this little town. We, when we left, we had bought the entire town out of Coke products. There wasn't a Coke product within 50 miles of where we were staying. Because after we got done with work, we would go and stuff our face with as many of the things that our American money could buy. So we, um, 
we're gone for 10 days, and the whole flight back, I remember all we could talk about is, oh, when we get to the airport, it's going to be great, because we had done reconnaissance on the way out, and we knew that right outside of the International Terminal at Chicago O'Hare, right outside and to the right, there was a McDonald's, and so literally, I'm not kidding, it was the greatest thing. We got through customs, and literally, we, started, we raced one another through the airport to try to get in line at McDonald's, and I don't even remember, but I'm pretty sure we ate hundreds of dollars of McDonald's. Because after 10 days, we were craving food from our home country, even crappy food from our home country. It really is a picture, I think, of the way that we should live. If Paul's metaphor is right, if we are citizens of heaven, then this world is not our home. We are exiles longing to return from a foreign land to our own country where our true happiness lies. We are pilgrims, travelers on a journey home. And we need to develop appetites as best we can for the food that is true food. Now, uh, so a paradigm shift, but then also a policy change. And the policy change is that if that's the case, then we better learn how to eat to live rather than to live to eat. Augustine warned that it is easy to lose interest in our home country, to stop pressing on and straining forward and, and upward. And when that happens, he said, it's because we started to unduly enjoy the things God intended to be used, to be used in helping us towards our goal. Augustine said that we have to use the world, not enjoy it. Now, he didn't mean you can't have a good time, that life should be all business and all seriousness, no fun. He meant that you have to remember that your ultimate happiness is not in this world and that what you're really looking for can't be had in this world. And therefore, you, you use the pleasures of the world to spur you on towards real joy. We don't live to eat, we eat to live. Holy eating is eating in a way that maintains your health and well-being because food is meant for the body, the scripture says. Now, maybe a great illustration are if you, in, in the military uh, the MREs that, that, we've, that we give to our, our, um, our soldiers, meals ready to eat. Uh, what's true of those things is the food is pleasurable, includes spices and, and ketchup and mustard and coffee and dessert. There's everything that, that the soldiers need, but it's designed to help the soldier complete the mission by giving him the nutrition and the sustenance he needs. So one, one, one writer said this, soldiers have to subordinate their appetites to the demand of the mission. While the meals aren't unappetizing, their primary purpose isn't to satisfy every taste bud on every palate, but to provide mission support with maximal, maximal efficiency and effectiveness. Extending this analogy to our Christian life, then, the writer goes on, we can ask ourselves whether our eating habits are dedicated to serving our own pleasure or to serving our spiritual mission. I think it's good advice. But then thirdly, so, I'm going to forget, I'm gonna, I can't get this, a paradigm shift and a policy change, and then a couple of practices, because sin is a matter of practices, and the spiritual practice for fighting gluttony is to find, find a rhythm of fasting and feasting. Let me talk about fasting first. Fasting is training the body to say no to food in order to find the spiritual energy to say no to other things. It's foregoing spiritual, excuse me, it's foregoing physical desires for the intensification of spiritual desire. So John Piper says that if you aren't living with hunger for God, it's because your soul's stuffed with small things and there's no room for the, for the great. So you fast from physical food to increase your hunger for, for spiritual food. But, but don't forget feasting also, because feasting is a biblical command. Now here's where I'll get the amens, I'm sure, right? You guys are loaded up with them for this part. Food and drink are gifts of God to be celebrated, but on occasion, see, on occasion. And so if you're, on, if you're not feasting, there's a problem. If you're not fasting, there's a problem. Asceticism is as deadly as, 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 uh, as hedonism. And so one of the ways you use the good things of God, rather than just merely enjoying them, is to, on certain occasions, 
one of the ways you use them is to enjoy them. Pull out the best wine. Splurge on the menu. Throw a big party in Jesus' name. Amen? You with me? That's holy. That's a holy thing to do. Now, a lifestyle of doing that is not. It's unhealthy. A lifestyle of feasting is unhealthy, but so is a lifestyle of fasting. So to properly train your appetite, you need to develop a rhythm of fasting and feasting. That's biblical wisdom, not mine. And so while we're talking about feasting then, let's not forget that this meal that we're about to partake of together is the true feasting that Jesus offers us. Here is the bread of heaven for us to eat. Here is the cup of salvation on our lips. Here is where we taste and see that the Lord is good. Amen? To taste and see that the Lord is good. Listen, that is the undoing of gluttony. And every other sin with it. And so let's pray as we get ready to come to the table this morning. Then, Can we pray together? Father, we thank you that you are a tremendous host that you love to throw parties and celebrate your children. Even in our waywardness and our sin, the moment we turn back to you, you call for the fatted calf to be killed and you throw a celebration and you invite the entire town to come and to celebrate with you because of the great joy that you have in feasting with your children. Like, like a parent who has sent their kids away to college and then and then uh, rejoices at the few times when everybody comes back home and is around the table again, like, like, like for so many years before. You, you, you set this table before us so that we can eat with you uh, because it delights your heart to be with us. You long for us. Jesus, you have made us. We press on to make our own because you have made us your own, Paul says in Philippians 3. You have made us your own. You long to intimately be in relationship with us and this meal is is the evidence of that and so as we come to it now in these moments would you use it to strengthen our faith use it to lead us to repentance uh, use it to strengthen the bonds of of and the ties of of union with you that we experience uh, so we might find uh, ourselves satisfied come and um, come and make it so that we taste and see that you're good and may it be the undoing of sin in our lives and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The place of his dying is the place of our living. And so we uh, go to the cross because at the cross we see the Father's great love for us. And that is what propels us out into the world. Uh, and so receive the promise of this benediction as he sends you uh, to go uh, and to reenact the truth of this meal in the way that you live your life from day to day. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace. Both now and forevermore, amen. Go in his peace.